Hello, everyone. Let's pray again. Jesus, you are the everlasting God, and your love for us is an everlasting love. Lord, it will never stop, because it never began. It has always been from before the foundation of the world. And Lord, may we see today that as the Father loves the Son and as you love us, your children, that you've given us a purpose to love and reflect your glory, as the Psalm 19 said. And as we listen now from your word, open our ears. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you. All right, yes, hello, everyone. I hope you're all enjoying Church at the Park today so far. Thank you all for being here. My name is Joey, and I'm an elder here at Common Ground, and I'm delighted to give our message this morning. Over about the last month or so, our church has been going through this series entitled God's Purpose, Our Purpose, in which we are answering from Scripture one simple but incredibly important question. What is the mission and purpose of Jesus? And this is somewhat of a trick question because, as we've explored until this point, the mission and purpose of Jesus can be rightly described in a multitude of ways. As Evan has said, Jesus says that in the Gospels, I have come to, or I will, 32 times in total. And today, we will look at another one of these times that he says this. And as we explore the definition and nature of our Lord's mission, today we will see that Jesus' mission is not the only mission that we should care about. There's another player in the game that we ought to pay attention to, even as much as we pay attention to Jesus. Because, you see, Jesus doesn't operate on his own. He even says in the Gospel of John that he can do nothing on his own. Why? Because in all that Jesus does, the entire time that he was on earth doing healings, miracles, and preaching, the moments of his betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, his paying for our sins, all of that, even now as he continually intercedes for us beside the throne of heaven, he does not do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. His Father. And that's what we'll see from our text today, that Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And I hope we see through this truth of Jesus' ministry, through the goodness and beauty of the loving command of the Father, and the joyful submission and obedience of the Son, that doing the Father's will is just as important for us as it is for Jesus. So let's turn to the Word of God in our primary text for this morning, which will be in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Lord, these words are beautiful. They are beautiful. And we thank you for them. 
We thank you that as many times we can often wonder what your will is, you tell us right here what it is. And Lord, as we explore it, may your word be declared with all authority that shows Jesus' glory and shows the Father's glory through him. Thank you again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So before we get into the text, a note on fathers and sons. I think we all agree that fathers are incredibly important. They, at least should, lead and teach their children. And every person needs a father. And everyone will make someone their father if they don't have one that was there for them at birth. We see this in our culture. There is an immense father hunger around us. People want a father who they will imitate. This subject is so important that I'm pretty sure all of you are glued to what I'm about to say about it. It's something we all know we need. And this is what I'll say about that. People develop their sense of purpose from their fathers, and especially their spiritual father, and they become like the fathers that they love and respect. Look to many examples in our culture. Say Bronny James, who's pursuing a career in the NBA just like his dad, LeBron. Also look at Colin Hanks, who already is a very well-established actor, just like the legend Tom Hanks. Or, like me and my brothers, all of us becoming engineers and physicists, just like my dad. Only at our dinner table would we be watching physics videos while my mom, self-admittedly, went cross-eyed. And thankfully... This truth not only is true in nature, but it's also true in the Bible. Look to Timothy, going into into ministry like his father in the faith, Paul. No doubt, there was incredible motherly and grandmotherly influence as well, but Timothy followed Paul all around the Near East and Asia on his missionary journeys. Look to Solomon, leading Israel in the golden age of the unified kingdom as king, of course, until he messed it up. But he was following the good rule of his father, David, who paved the way for him to do that. And then, of course, Jesus, following the Father and coming down from heaven to us to do the Father's will, not his own. Fathers give their sons purpose. And sons who love and respect their fathers become like their fathers. God has created us, created that in us. We see that by nature. We see that in Scripture. So then why? Why did God do that? Why is that so important for us to know? And I would say this. I would think the Bible answers this question this way. Why is that so important? Because it is through sonship that God would save the world. It's through sonship that God would save the world. I mean, this is what God's will is. This is the Father. This is what he says right here in John chapter 6. That Jesus should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And Jesus will raise him up on the last day. We will become sons and daughters of God ourselves for believing in the Son. And we see here from these two verses that God's will is twofold. It is first, in verse 39, a gift to the Son. When he says that Jesus should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. This means that God intends to give all of creation to the son who does his will and all the glory to the son who does his will. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter one, when he's quoting Psalm eight, where he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Jesus will lose nothing. God has prepared all of creation as a gift to the son to give to him as an act of love. He will lose nothing. Not one blade of grass. Not one second of time. Not one ounce of glory. And it will be raised. All that is now corrupted will be resurrected. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming. Praise the Lord. The Father's will is a gift to the Son. But it is also, as we see in verse 40, a promise for us. God intends to give us his children as a gift to the Son as well. As it says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And Jesus will raise him up on the last day. For those who believe, for those who see Jesus and believe, just like all of creation that declares the glory of God, we will receive resurrection and eternal life in Jesus' name. That's what Jude means when he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God will present us blameless to himself with great joy. Jesus, the son of God, will receive his church with great joy. For we have been perfected. We have been made blameless before him. And that, that is the reason It's to the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. It's a beautiful thing. The Father's will is beautiful. It is a gift to the Son and a promise for us. But we see also from our chapter, or from our section here in John, that this gift and this promise, they're only satisfied when one condition is met. That the Son does the Father's will. That's why it's so important that Jesus says that he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. The gift and the promise are only given when the Son does the Father's will. The Father gives the Son a purpose, and when the Son does that purpose, God uses that to bless all things. So, Let's go on a short journey through the Old Testament, and we will see that this has always been God's plan from all time and eternity. Let's go to the first son of God, Adam. Whoopsies. (laughs) In the beginning, when God created the world, God created Adam, Adam, man. And God gave him a gift and a promise too. Many, in fact. He created Adam to be the image of God. And it says in Genesis 1.28 that God blessed them, Adam and Eve, his creation, his image. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth 
and subdue it, and have dominion over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See this gift and promise. God gave dominion and he promised fruitfulness and blessing. I mean, come on. God put Adam in a garden with food. Come on. Have you ever had food before? Seriously. Food is so good. That's one thing that the movie Over the Hedge got right. Paradise is where the food is. And then, of course, Adam's greatest earthly gift. Adama, the woman, Eve, his partner in dominion taking. The one without whom Adam could not do what God called him to do. Not even food made Adam burst out into poetry. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I shall call you woman, for you are taken out of man. It is so wonderful what God gave Adam. And with this gift, God gave Adam a purpose. To be the image of God, to have dominion, to keep the garden, to eat, but not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. To love and lead his wife and to together be fruitful and subdue the earth. But remember how I said, the gift and the promise are only satisfied when the son does the father's will. We see that Adam, in Genesis chapter 3, he failed in his sonship. When Eve was tempted and sinned, Adam was there with her. His sin was just as much as hers. He passively took of the food he wasn't supposed to eat, blatantly ignoring God's command. He did not believe the Father and therefore disobeyed. His will did not align with the Father's will. So these blessings were taken away. The garden was sealed off. He lost what God gave him. He pursued his own will, eating of the fruit that was desired to make one wise, to make one like God. Sin entered the world and with it death. And last I checked, that's the opposite of eternal life. There now needs to be a new son in order to do the Father's will. Well, thankfully, God did, did choose a new son. And his name is Israel. Through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God chose a new son, a new promised heir of his gifts. Now, remember that story of Jacob wrestling with God to the break of dawn, and then God pops out his hip and how he was renamed Israel, for he had striven with God. Shortly after, when God actually changes his name in Genesis 35, God says this to him. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. God gave Jacob slash Israel sonship in the same way that he gave Adam sonship. He called Israel to do the same thing he called Adam to do. All the blessings were the same. A nation, land, fruitfulness. (laughs) And then you fast forward 400 years and some change. Israel has just been in slavery under Egypt for 400 years and God brings him out 
So far, so good. The fruitfulness is there. The gift is there. God is saving his people. And God loves his child Israel so much that the prophet Hosea says in 11 verse 1, that when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So, to give the gift to this to give the gift of God to his people, his child Israel. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gives them another gift and another purpose. For the Lord says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's Exodus 19. Israel's task, their purpose, their telos, was to believe and obey and to keep the covenant that God made with them and they would be God's treasured possession in a kingdom of priests. I mean, you can't escape the beauty of this. I'm again reminded of Evan and Lena, our lovely pastor and pastor's wife. When they first had Lydia, I remember Evan saying, you don't give me anything, all you do is take, but I just look at you and I love you. They just treasure their child. It's a beautiful thing. And as much as they love Lydia, God loves his children in the same way. He just loves us. I prayed in the beginning, Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I've once heard someone say that the reason God will never stop loving you is because he never began. God just loves his children. And you can't really explain it other than that's just who he is. It's beautiful. God loves his child so much that he calls them his treasured possession of all the earth, which is his. And the role he gave them was one, again, that expressed his everlasting love, is to be a kingdom of priests. Because see, to be a, a priest of God, that was to represent both God before the people, and it was to represent the people to God. In other words, it was the connecting point between God who was on heaven and the people who were on earth. The priesthood was how God would be with his people. That's how God made a way, was through the priesthood. God the Father loved his son, who was treasured in his eyes, who wanted to be with him and set up this whole temple system to be with his son. But again, remember how I said, The gift and the promise are only satisfied when the Son does the Father's will. Well, if you keep reading the Old Testament, we see that Israel also failed in his sonship. Because that verse from Hosea that I quoted earlier, there's more to that. For he does say, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. 
the very moments after God calls his son Israel his treasured possession and the kingdom of priests, they didn't listen to his voice. They worshiped the golden calf. They sought their own will and not the Father's. So the blessings are taken away. And again, story after story in the Old Testament shows this. Multiple stories show that the priesthood of Aaron fails in accomplishing its role. And eventually, the priesthood of Aaron is revoked. It's through another priestly line that God will bring his son to do his will. And then, of course, they lose the, the blessing of the land that God gives them. After centuries of disobedience, God sends them into exile for 70 years to give the land its rest. Israel failed in his sonship. And now the chasm remains, and the Father's will is unfinished. And so, from the race of man, all who are descended from Adam and Israel... Who can be the son to do the Father's will? There is one, Jesus. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, something awesome about the Gospel of John is that theme, this theme is prevalent throughout. John emphasizes so much that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Father who is in heaven. And this is so important, because as we've seen, this is a theme established throughout the whole Old Testament, that the only way for the Father's will to be done is for it to be done by someone who is obedient, by a son who loves and respects his Father so much that he is like him in every way. And there are three primary questions that the Gospel of John answers. And the last one will land us right here in our John chapter 6. The three questions are these. Who is the true Son of God? How does the Son of God do the Father's will? And then, most important for us, how are we who failed to do the Father's will redeemed by the Son who did the Father's will? Let's take those one at a time. First, who is the true Son of God? John opens his book and says that it's the one who was with God in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The one who was with God forever. He also says that the true Son of God is the one who is one in being and in purpose with the Father, who is perfectly like his Father. Again, the Word not only was with God, but the Word was God. They are the same. When Jesus says in John 10, verse 30, that I and the Father are one, he means it. And this is the beauty of the Trinity, right? This is something that only Christianity has, and that's why the Trinity is so important. That God, the Father, though distinct in personhood, though completely loving and giving of all of creation to the Son, he is still fully God. And Jesus, who though distinct in his personhood, though he was incarnate, incarnated and came to earth and was the exact imprint of God's nature, he is still fully God. He is the son that Adam and Israel were not. 
So then how does this Son of God, this Jesus, do the Father's will? Well, he says in verse 37 that he must come down from heaven. And this is what John 1 says as well, that the Word who was with God, who was God in the beginning, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how much God wanted the Son's will to be accomplished, that he himself, Jesus, who was God and is God, stepped down from heaven to do his Father's will. He left heaven, coming to earth to do his will. And that's exactly what he does. How does the Son do the Father's will? He has to do the works that the Father does. For in John chapter 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Think of how many funny stories there are of either when you were a child or if you have children, the son who loves his dad and just wants to be like him. It's the, the cute imitations that we see. This is just what the son does. The son does the works of his father because he loves him. And then, of course, hitting right home here. The son of God does the father's will by not doing his own will, but the will of his father, even when his will is contrary And of course, that's right here in this verse, but I'm also reminded of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is in the garden. And he even prays to God the Father. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did not want to face the wrath of God. Who would? But unlike Adam, unlike Israel, and unlike us, he stuck it through. He did the Father's will. And even when he was faced with this temptation, it says in Luke that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He resisted the temptation so much because he loved his Father that much more. Only Jesus joyfully submits to the Father's will. Seriously, read John. Drink from the fire hose that is this theme in this whole book, and you'll be amazed. And then, of course, going back to our chapter, there's one more question that John answers. How are we who failed to do the Father's will, redeemed by the Son who did the Father's will? And I believe the argument of John is this. We must believe in the Son. And like Jesus, do what Adam and Israel, and also the people of John 6, did not. Because you see, the overall context of this chapter is all about Jesus diagnosing the unbelief of the people. It's also the chapter where he calls himself the bread of life. If you read two verses above where we started today, you will see that that's what he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This chapter is all about belief in the Son. So a bit of context. Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and the people try and force him to become king. 
he withdraws to the other side of the of, of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And this crowd followed him. They pursued him. They wanted more of him. Sounds good, right? Well, we'll find that that is not the case. Because it says in John 6, verse 25, that when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus calls them out. They don't believe. They don't believe in Jesus the Son. They just want what they can get from him. And the Son of Man is the one that gives the food that endures to eternal life. They just want the food that perishes. God the Father has approved of Jesus. He set his seal on it. And after multiple, multiple times of asking, they keep asking him, Jesus, what must we do? And he tells them multiple times, believe in the Son. Believe in him whom he has sent. That is the work of God. And that's what we must do as well. Believe in the Son. Receive the bread of life because he came down from heaven to give it to you. This is what we need to do. So for those of you that don't know Christ, like I said at the beginning, and like I think the Bible lays out very clearly, that it is through sonship that God saves the world. Not only through Jesus, the perfect son doing the Father's will, but also we, who are sons and daughters for believing in him, doing the Father's will. So believe in the Son. Believe in the Son. We are all illegitimate sons and daughters, but through Jesus, being the perfect Son, God the Father says to us with open arms, welcome to the family. There's a room for you here in this house. Remember the promise in verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Right now, he speaks to you through his word, and if you hear his voice, Go to him. Repent of your sins. Like I said, we are all illegitimate sons and daughters of Adam, but he has given us a new name and a new family. Walk into his house in Jesus' name, and you will never, ever, ever be cast out. And we here, we're your brothers and sisters, here to welcome you in. Come to us. Confess your sins to me, our elders, to anyone who would pray with you. And then, as Jesus says, go and sin no more. Now, for those of us who do know Christ, who have known him, whether for a little or a long time, there's something for us here, too. Because, you see, we never stop struggling with belief. I think what we ought to do here is we need to be the sons and the daughters that we are. 
It really is simple in a lot of ways. God has told the story throughout all time of how he will save the world through his son. He's still telling the story even now. We see the promises, and it's just a matter of operating in our daily lives as if they are true. Obviously, this is far easier said than done. But it's just a matter of every day saying, Father, how can I give you the glory? How can I love you and serve you the best today? I am a son, I am a daughter who wants to do your will. Lord, be pleased. And remember the encouragement of the scriptures. Remember the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption that we have received, by whom we cry, Abba. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For you see, all of the gifts that the Father gives the Son, Paul says in Romans 8, we are heirs with Christ. We receive the same gifts that the Father gives the Son if we would believe in him. Remember this story that we are in. Remember the story. Though Paul says that we will suffer in this life, in the end, there will be glory. I don't know what you're facing today, whether it's crippling sin, crushing despair, heartbreaking grief, or even bitter and deadly lukewarmness. The story of the Son of God ends in a glorious victory. Remember, all of creation and all who are in Jesus will be raised up and we will forever sing the praises of our Lord. So fight the good fight now. Take up your shield and your armor now. Run the race with endurance. That means repenting of every sin no matter how tired of repenting you may be. That means loving your neighbor and your enemy in every way, regardless of your circumstance. That means pursuing the wisdom and knowledge of God with an insatiable hunger for a renewed mind and a transformed heart. That means joining the heavens in praising God with thanksgiving and praying with all earnestness for everything in your life, knowing that he will work it all together for good in Christ. This means looking at the simple commandments of God the Father in Scripture and obeying them without question. Never slander. Be kind to all. Do not grumble, but be content with what you have. Do not be bitter, but forgive even your worst enemy. I could go on. There are so many commandments in Scripture that we don't need anyone to explain to us. Where we fail is not our understanding, it's our obedience. And all of this, all of this, comes from believing in the Son. And remember that when the times are hard, not the least of your acts of faith-filled obedience will be lost. Even down to the cup of water you give your neighbor, Jesus says in Matthew. Live in this way where people see the joy that you have in Christ in every circumstance. The joy that is of a son or daughter who has been redeemed and has a full family, full of love, waiting for you in eternity. It's only in this understanding that we can burst out with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is my Father's world. 
Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let's all do this, church. Wherever your belief falls short, he is here to help your unbelief. The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how insufficiently we see what you're doing. We thank you for your word, which clarifies for us that your will is not a mystery, but it is given, communicated to us through your Son.